Hello everyone, my name is Andrew and welcome back to the McGill International Review. Today's guest is Jessica Gross, who is an opinion writer for the New York Times. She covers many issues relating to pop culture, economic inequality, and more recently, a new series about the decline of religion in modern society. I brought her onto this podcast because of that excellent series about that decline of religious participation in modern society. The series covers this topic from a wide variety of areas, whether it be the way that political polarization or generational divides play a role in declining religious rates, as well as the extent to which um, community and belonging can be found outside of religion. For the series, she heard from thousands of her own readers about their own stories about how they fell away from religion and where they are now. And she supplemented a lot of that with hard data from social scientists about the effect that secularization has had on society and where it's come from. A lot of the trends that we discuss, like cultural reasons that someone might want to move away from a certain religion, or the extent to which someone can find a sense of community and belonging outside of it, a lot of those are really complicated, and essentially that's, essentially that's the conclusion that we came to a lot of the time, which is that there aren't very many hard answers to a lot of the questions that we raise. And that's okay. Sometimes it's simply fine to recognize that a situation is very nuanced because it allows you to continue raising ideas with a sense of curiosity and humility through it all. One more thing. The guest talks a lot about how these trends relate to the U.S., but it is worth noting that many similar trends are also applying right here in Canada, whether it be differences in religious participation rates depending on the age demographic or generation, and also which religions are declining at a faster rate, and so on and so forth. Um, hope you enjoy. All right, Jessica Gross, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. So to begin, um, so obviously you wrote that series about the decline of religion. Um, but throughout your series, you constantly reference Phil Zuckerman, who is one of the co-authors of a recent book on the increasing secularization of modern society. So he mentioned to you that, uh, and I'm quoting your article right now, when social scientists talk about religion, they do it in terms of three, the three B's, belief, behavior, and belonging. So could you elaborate on this a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so when people tell pollsters that they're Christian or they're Jewish, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they feel those things across those three pillars. So I can give myself an example. I will always tell a pollster that I am Jewish because that is how I identify the be the belonging. I feel I belong to that group. But my belief system is only somewhat informed by Judaism and um, my behavior is certainly not particularly Jewish. I don't go to temple. Um, I celebrate holidays, but only at home. Um, and so everyone's religious identity is a sort of complicated mixture of those three parts. Um, and that's why when you look at the polling, especially in the United States, it's somewhat complicated. Because when I first heard, oh, 20 to 30% of Americans now identify as having no religion in particular, before I really dug into it, I assumed that that meant that those people uh, don't believe 
believe in God or a higher power or that they'd never go to church. And that's simply not true. Um, it's that be belonging that I think um, is what makes them identify as having no religion rather than being Christian or Muslim or, you know, any other religious affiliation. Yeah. So when it comes to these studies about the decline of religion with regards to like the three Bs, what would you say is like declining at a faster rate and what is declining at a slower rate? Like, would you say that belief is declining faster or like belonging is declining faster and so on and so forth? Um, I would say the biggest changes are in behavior. Um, I talk about that uh, in the series. Uh, it's called de-churching. And that doesn't just mean not going to church anymore. It means not going to, you know, any variety of religious service. Um, but Americans have really stopped attending church pretty rapidly. And that happened even faster uh, when the pandemic set in because people got out of the habit um, and they really weren't finding that online services fed them in quite the same way. And some of them, I think, felt, you know, I'm not really missing this ritual. Um, and so I would say that's the one that's sort of changing the fastest. Um, belonging is a little more fluid um, because the United States, we have a tradition of people changing religions much more uh, frequently and aggressively than, than many of our other peer nations where people just tend to, you know, if they do not continue with the religion of their birth, they just don't have any religion in particular. Whereas in the United States, it's more common um, if you, you know, start in one religion um, to then, you know, potentially find another if you're just sort of a spiritual seeker. Yeah. All right. So uh, switching gears onto this uh, similar topic. When it comes to, like, for example, someone who might say that, like, they don't belong to any religion in particular. So there's this term that you uh, constantly use throughout the series called nuns, where it's spelled N-O-N-E-S, but it's, like, pronounced the same way as, like, Catholic nuns, um, which is a nice pun. But anyway, so, like, when it comes to, like, the idea of nuns, could you talk a little bit about, for example, the different categories that nuns are composed of and, like, how they tend to be divvied up with regards to specific demographics in the country? Sure. So nuns, the most sort of prominent groups of nuns are atheists and agnostics. So atheists absolutely do not believe in God or a higher power. Uh, agnostics think, you know, aren't willing to rule it out, but are, you know, don't necessarily uh, have belief in a higher power as something that, you know, is a mainstay of their worldview. Um, and they are a real minority uh, in terms of the nuns. Um, they tend to be wealthier. They tend to be better educated than the average American. Um, and then the vast majority of people who say they have no religion in particular, they really have no religion, which means that they don't have some other sort of substitute worldview that they have thought through deeply. So it's just um, like non-salient, they, like it, they don't believe they don't have that strong of a belief in either atheism or theism. Exactly, exactly. So they just say they are not affiliated with anything in particular. Um, and those people are the most likely to return to religion. Um, so there have been some studies and I can't, uh, my brain is mush, I can already not remember if I ended up citing them in any of the pieces. Um, but um, those people may return to, you know, 
faith of some kind um, under particular circumstances. So one point in people's lives when they may return to faith is often if they form families and have children. Um, I certainly find that resonant in my life because I, I feel like my husband and I did a lot of religious questioning um, when we had children because it really forces you to think about you know, what are the values that I want to pass on and what do I want my kids to learn? Um, but there's numerous reasons why people may kind of go back and forth if they don't feel particularly strongly either way. I mean, you know, if a friend brings you to a church service and you really like that friend and you find um, a social group that you feel like you really are a part of, um, that can be something that brings people back to um, church attendance. So, you know, that that group of nothing in particulars, um, it's a very fungible group. And if you check in on them over time, um, they're not always the same people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I find it like you, you mentioned that, like, for example, starting a family might, for example, increase your chances of like deciding to become a churchgoer. I find it really interesting, like the current incentives of the modern church, um, for example, in the US. So like, to quote the book that like you constantly cite that one quote about like the that book about dechurching. So you're I'm going to quote the book that like and this is the quote that you have. And I'm, I guess I'm quoting your quote. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it says um, modern American churches are financially incentivized to target the wealthy and create a space where those on track feel comfortable. Biblical hospitality, though, is so much more than just throwing money at a problem. And the net result is that the average American church is not truly hospitable to the less fortunate, making them feel like outsiders in our midst. So could you elaborate a little bit on the ways that like a lot of the time churches are structured or like they're just like even if they're not intentionally designed, they still end up like incentivizing like attendance from people that like fit a specific like group or a specific class or anything like that? Sure. Well, as part of this survey, uh, as part of the series of articles, I did a survey um, and about 7,500 people answered the survey. So I heard from a lot of different people from all over the country with many different faith backgrounds. Um, and one aspect of church attendance that was a turnoff um, for many people was the constant asking for money. So not just tithing, which is part of some, some church, uh, some denominations, you know, whole, uh, structure but you know constantly saying oh we have this improvement project oh we have this that and the other thing and just you know constantly asking for money that they might not be able to give and feeling really if you weren't able to give money that they're you know with something less than about your relationship to the church so i think that was one part of it but you know another part of it is uh in denominations or sects or, or certain parts of religion that are unwelcoming to single parents who are really um, discouraged divorce. Um, if, if that is part of your life, um, you can feel that you are not welcome if that has been your, your journey. Um, and so I think that's sort of the other half of it. Um, we have many social issues in life that uh, are, have changed over the past 40, 50 years. Uh, not just in terms of church attendance, but as people's lives and lifestyles have changed, um, I think they can feel quite unwelcome. And one of the big things that um, I haven't mentioned is um, LGBTQ folks, um, you know, depending on the church, they may feel 
very unwelcome. And that was a recurring theme um, that I heard from many readers that, you know, that that really was um, their reason for um, disaffiliation. So you mentioned in your article, this one story about Julie Prado and why she became a lot less um, partial towards like things like, for example, regular church attendance. So why don't we start there as like a way to like, as like a window into this really complicated multifaceted issue? Sure. Um, so if, if memory serves, she said she really wanted to find a church community that was gay affirming and her inability to find a church that was gay affirming, um, even though she still really believed in the tenets of Christianity, uh, m kept her from regular church attendance and she felt a real loss of community. She felt she had fewer friends than she did before. Um, and I think a lot of people that I spoke to felt similarly, like even if they wanted really believe very deeply in Jesus's teachings or, you know, what, whatever was the leader or, or belief system of their churches or temples or what have you. Um, they felt that it was incompatible with a community that did not affirm LGBTQ Americans. Um, and many of them had, were gay themselves or had relatives that were LGBTQ and just felt that they could not uh, morally be part of a community that didn't fully affirm um, that group of people. And so uh, that just was an extremely common experience. And I, I, it does have some political valence um, because particularly with Christianity, um, the conservative Christian right, which really rose to prominence in the 80s, um, over time almost branded Christianity with left with right wing political values for in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, like, for so, example, like, like the, the, the prominence of the Christian right during, say, for example, the Reagan administration. Yes. Um, but it really came to a head with Trump, who was clearly very divisive in a, multiple ways for many groups of people. Um, but I think particularly because he had such deep support among uh, evangelicals, uh, people who did not share support of Trump or that particularly belief system felt very alienated from their evangelical communities and felt that they couldn't be a part of those communities anymore. And to be clear, this was not always messaging that was coming from the pulpit. So Ryan Berg, who I quote, you know, I think a number of times throughout the series, who's a sociologist, but he's also a, a social science researcher, but he's also a pastor. Um, he you know, did a study and found only 15% of pastors were giving explicitly political messages. But to have a community... Wait, when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the explicitly political messages that they were giving, was there like a skew in terms of like it tended to be more left-wing or right-wing or whatever? I think it tended to be more right-wing. Um, but that doesn't mean that a community can still... A church community can still have... Uh, be very skewed in one political direction or another, um, even if it's not coming directly from the pastor or faith leader. And so I think people were often feeling, oh, I'm out of step with my community members and I don't feel like I belong to this community anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, and maybe it's like a, like a self-reinforcing loop where like you don't really feel like 
uh, you belong in this community because of those types of reasons. So it causes you to leave and then it causes present day churches to become more of like the people that weren't incentivized to leave before. Um, yes. Yeah. Like I remember one of my co-hosts, um, he interviewed uh, Elizabeth Brunig onto, on the podcast earlier this summer. And she actually like, she actually cited your article about the way that Christianity has a branding problem because she's a socialist and like her like faith compels her to like support a much more expansive, for example, social welfare state. But then the question is like, do you think there is any sort of appetite like on the ground within society to sort of like build or like either build far more like religious institutions in a way that like is comfortably more left wing or like try to like push the current institutions that exist to be more like partial to that area? Well, I think it's 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 just such an imperfect fit in in any direction, right? Because um, I think, you know, I, Elizabeth, I, I believe it's Catholic and I, and Catholics have always had such a deep social justice and feeding the poor. And like that, that has always been part of sort of, you know, Catholic communities. And I don't think that that has stopped. Um, I think the current set of beliefs that is right wing and left wing doesn't layer perfectly over people's religious beliefs because it was never meant to it's yeah. it, it should you know what i mean so um, yeah and a lot I of the do... time a lot of the time either like societal pressures or financial pressures or whatnot they end up trying to like warp religious sentiment into like like either fitting onto like a neat left wing or a neat right wing area even though that was never what it was meant to do Exactly. And it's always going to be, I think, messy and it's going to be complicated. Whether or not people have an innate desire, um, I, I don't know. I think that they have a real desire for community. We're social animals and religion is really good at replicating strong communities. And I think to, I think that there will be a desire for that going forward. Exactly what shape it takes I will not prognosticate about <laughs> because I don't know. And as you know, reading all, all of this and, and talking to so many experts who study religion, um, sociologists and academics of many different kinds, um, I think one thing that's really interesting and specific about the United States is how religiously entrepreneurial we are. So, you know, there are new groups and new denominations and new religious ideas coming out of the United States constantly. Um, and so I could absolutely see some new form of whether it's Christianity, whether it's some other sort of spirituality, um, bringing people together in the future. But what that's going to look like, I have absolutely no idea. And apologies for uh, the ice cream truck, which is you can maybe hear in the background right now. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I, I can barely hear it. But even then, the ice cream truck, uh, it, it's no big deal. Um, yeah. But anyway, so like, I guess I want to like try to zero in on like two interesting facets. So I guess to begin, um, do you think like, would you do you think there's any sort of age divide with regards to religious participation in the present day? For example, here in Canada, there are a lot of like similar trends with regards to like increasing secularization and especially like a decline of Christianity that's um, I guess in some way similar to what's happening in the U.S. But in Canada, there's also like a generational gap where like older Canadians are 
much more likely to be religiously affiliated than younger Canadians. Is there something similar in the U.S. with regards to like younger generations being much less religious? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you see it happening. The secularization is happening rapidly over time. So, you know, the silent generation and boomers are far more religious than millennials. And it goes down even further for Gen Z. And part of that is just, you know, more boomers than the earlier generation uh, had already started to fall away from religion. And so if you are raised by people who don't really have religion, chances are you're also not going to have religion. Um, and, you know, the, the younger you are, again, the more likely you are to say that you are a nun. However, Gen Z, again, has not uh, reached the age yet where most of them are having are getting married or, or have families. And again, that historically has been a time where people who have left religion return. Uh, but whether that trend will continue kind of remains to be seen, because I do think um, the internet has really changed the way we socialize um, and church attendance is sort of one part of that. Uh, but it also has changed the way we get information. So many people uh, who answered my survey that I talked to during the course of my reporting who moved away from the religion that they were raised in said, um, you know, I read Reddit, uh, atheist, you know, r slash atheist, and I realized that everything I had been told was false. Um, and the immediate access to that kind of information just wasn't possible 30 40 years ago, you know, you had to actually go to, if you lived in a closed community where everybody believed the same thing, um, you would have really had to work hard to seek out that information. And that's just not true anymore. Yeah, which is really interesting, because then like the whole trend, like whether or not the trend continues of like, like the Gen Zers like me, maybe like, like our generation, once we get older and get married, maybe like, um, maybe we become more religious, which is like, A, it's interesting, but also, uh, like, marriage isn't as central as it used to be. So that might be a confounding factor. So maybe, like, the trend continues, but at, a, like, a lower rate than it used to. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think oh, we're in a moment where I think people are questioning all of our institutions. And so it isn't surprising that religion and religious institutions would be part of that. But again it's more complicated than that because it's not just about, oh, do I define myself as a Christian? It's about what do I believe? Um, do I believe in God? Uh, do the teachings of, you know, whatever holy book you, that is part of your um, history and culture, does that resonate with me? Is that important in my life? And you can create, uh, you can really feel strongly about having that worldview while at the same time, being disgusted by the way that your religion has behaved uh, institutionally. So the example, again, that came up many, many times with the Catholic Church was uh, the way that they did not deal with the pedophilia that, you know, just in so many dioceses and made people really turned off from associating themselves from from continuing to be part of that church. And so um, that's just sort of one, you know, very uh, highly uh, reported on example of people who may still hold the belief, but don't want to be associated with the institution anymore. 
Yeah. And then the question is, like, where do you draw the line? Because, like, obviously, these institutions are incredibly important in terms of giving people a sense of community and belonging. So then the question is, like, how like how far gone would those institutions be in order for you to be willing to disassociate yourself with them? Mm -hmm. um, and that's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's all it's, it's this is complicated. Like, there are no easy answers for this. Yeah. Exactly. And there's, I mean, one thing that just, I was so touched by all the reporting I did, there was so much pain for people. Um, this wasn't, I think that there maybe is a stereotype that people are, who leave religion are flippant or they hate religion or, you know, it's not serious to them. And I think that there was. May, well, maybe the um, reason why there's that stereotype is because of sampling bias, because the people that are most vocal in terms of walking away from a religion are the ones that tend to be the most like anti-theistic as opposed yes. to being represent like a representative sample. Exactly. Um, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Just like, you know, the association of Christianity with right wing beliefs, if it's just the mo it, it, it's not wholly representative, it's just the people who are extremely vocal about it. Right. Um, but I just was really struck by how tough this was for a lot of people and how nobody, no one I talked to, at least, um, was making these decisions lightly in their lives. Yeah. Um, but like touching on like the question of like no one that you talked to was making these decisions lightly. Do you think there might be like a little bit of sampling bias in terms of like the people that you were surveying? Partly because like these are New York Times readers. And obviously, New York Times readers are not like a representative sample of the country at large. Oh, and I made that crystal clear in every piece I wrote. I said this, this survey is not representative <laughs> of anything. <laughs> it, yeah. it is just, you know, uh, it. it it could give me and, and that's why I always wanted to be so careful to back up that reporting with uh, with data, with books, with experts, um, just to make sure that it wasn't just like, well, this random lady said this, you know, it was trying to situate it in uh, larger thematic history, what's going on in the rest of the world, um, really giving it a lot of rich context rather than, you know, certainly not a representative sample of 7,000 people. However, I will say, I, what, I, I think I spoke to uh, people in almost every state of the union. Um, it was quite geographically diverse within the United States, you know, rural areas, urban areas, every different state. Um, so I think we got something there. But again, completely unscientific. Hmm. I am not doing social science. I am doing journalism, which is adjacent, but they're not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. But like, would you say there was any sort of like tension? Like, were there times where like the results you were getting from your survey respondents felt like a like it didn't map on that well with the like the data from social scientists? Well, the one thing that I I did see that was not yet represented in social science, which doesn't mean it's not a trend. It just means, you know, it, no one studied it yet. Um, I, a lot of older Americans that I talked to um, had moved away from religion. So historically, if you're going to leave the religion you were raised in, you did it before the age of 25, roughly. This is something that, you know, as you came of age, as you became independent and moved away from your family of origin, um, if you really didn't believe, that's when you would move away from religion. But uh, in my survey, I got a ton of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s who were like, I just moved away from religion last week. And here's why I lost faith. And here's why it's not working for me anymore. Um, and that, at least, is not 
again, it's not what has happened historically, but that doesn't mean it's not happening more frequently now. It just hasn't necessarily shown up in any polling yet. Yeah, I wonder, and maybe it's like, like, in, like a byproduct of the increasing secularization of the modern world paired with things like the internet and like paired with things like, like the way that the U.S. is gradually, for example, becoming more sequestered off and less like, like open in like a more communal sense. And maybe those things all like combine so that like people of all different age demographics are gradually becoming less religious. Well, I think there is the the speculation that I did was because it is less controversial now to say, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I don't believe than it was 40 years ago. It's possible that they never in their youth even felt comfortable admitting it to themselves. Um, I think we all have a pretty high capability for um, compartmentalization and, and self-deception, uh, myself included, certainly. Uh, so I think it's totally possible that just because it was so unacceptable in society, they didn't even go there in their own minds. Uh, and I and now because it is more commonplace, although it really depends on what part of the country you're in, because there certainly were people who wouldn't even give me their names on the record because they didn't want to be known as an atheist in their towns. Um, I think it, it because it is more broadly socially acceptable, people might be willing to let themselves really explore it in a way that they potentially wouldn't have before. Yeah, let themselves admit to something that they do genuinely believe when in reality, like in the past, they might have denied it, like within themselves in order to like, gain a level of social standing without like, making it hard on their own conscience. Exactly, I think, or maybe just not even I, I think there's some ways in which we just kind of go through life because it's easier and we don't we don't examine things really deeply. Um, you know, it's uh, it's my job to examine things really deeply. So. <laughs> um, I, 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 well, I, I, I like I think that you do it pretty well. <laughs> oh, yeah. thank you. That's so kind. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I never want to take for granted the fact that that's not the typical experience in any way. Um, and so I think, you know, why rock the boat? There's so many things in life where it's just easier to just keep doing what you're doing and, and just accept that. And I think in terms, of, again, this is speculation. This is just based in the many conversations that I had. And so, you know, all caveat, all those caveats included. Um, I think also many of these people had recently retired. And so I think when you're busy, you're working, you're raising a family, you just don't have the mental space to kind of sit down and say, okay, what do I really believe? Um, and so I think there was some part yeah, so of it. Theoretically, that... you, can make the you can make the argument that like exploring what you really believe, that's a luxury good. Like it's only there for people mm -hmm. that can afford to. I don't know if I would go that far, but certainly, you know, and there's many ways, things that I'm sure I'm not examining because I'm just like, oh, I have to go pick up my kids from camp. Like I'm so my mind is occupied by the logistics of my day to an extent where I'm just like, well, I could sit here and have a deep think about, you know, whether I believe in God <laughs> or I could, you know, be occupied with the, you know, to do list, the the very long to do list that I have, you know. So I and, and you know, I'm a very privileged person in many ways. So I don't know if I, I maybe it's a luxury of time necessarily than a luxury of, you know, money. 
Um, but yes, I mean, it is not everyone has the mental space to really have that sort of deep existential dive. Yeah. And I guess that deep existential dive when it comes to like, who's making it and who's deciding to become more secular, I guess to turn back to like, the way that like specific groups might be like have like specific different trends within the data. Um, so I guess to ask this, the next question, uh, which racial demographics are leaving organizers religion at a faster rate than others? Well, so, I mean, it's pretty uniform across the board. Um, I, if memory serves, um, Hispanic Americans are the least likely to be leaving religion. Um, but everybody else is falling away at pretty equal and significant speed. Um, I'm Jewish, and so I was particularly keyed into uh, whether Jews are falling away from religion, and we we are in uh, at a pretty high rate. We are a little complicated to study, though, because there are so few of us comparatively, uh, and also it's an ethno religion. So you know, hmm. many uh, many Jews will identify as Jewish, even uh, if we are not uh, going to temple or necessarily, you know, performing Jewish rituals. So, uh, we're sort of a little bit of an asterisk to study. Um, but, uh, many of us are, you know, we are intermarrying in greater numbers. Uh, we have interfaith marriages. I am included in that. And, uh, you know, in terms of our temple attendance, it's, uh, it is not looking good. So, uh, it's, it's, again, it's sort of, pretty you know all that sort of context uh given it is happening at a pretty rapid rate for nearly everybody yeah it's happening at a rapid rate for nearly everyone and i i do think it is leaving like a like it is causing it is contributing to the general decline of community and belonging that um you could see in the western world at least in my opinion um, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that. But I, it's always a chicken or an egg problem. It's like, well, are people just becoming more isolated in general? And is religious community an aspect of that? Or is it religion specific? Um, and is it, you know, the falling away from religion is making them more isolated? Yeah, Or um, maybe it's I think both it, at the same time, maybe they're, they're like additive towards each other. It's true. I mean, it's certainly not mutually exclusive. But I think it's, you know, when these big social change changes happen in a fairly short amount of time i think um there's it's always really complicated there's always multiple reasons um i was very struck in having all of these conversations and reading all these survey responses that how um really specific the details of people's religious journeys were um and how they're you know and and some people wrote in who had moved towards faith um but the circumstances of their lives were just so important in terms of these religious affiliations. And so I never, you know, as much as to write on this topic, you have to generalize to some extent. Um, there is just such a wide variety of reasons why it's happening. Yeah, it's like it's like the more you study this issue, the more you realize it's very complicated and hard to draw like strong conclusions in specific directions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's, it's so fascinating to think about and talk to people about, I could, I, 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 it's been honestly one of the greatest reporting joys of my career, just because I've learned so much, um, not just about the way people feel about religion, but just, you know, the specifics of different religious rituals and what goes on in all different kinds of churches that I 
never knew about. I mean, I'm not, I have not had the pleasure of attending every denomination in the United States services. So um, (laughs) it was actually just for a curious person, such a joy to, to learn about all of the specifics of, you know, what these church services look like and, oh, I miss these songs and uh, these community events were so meaningful to me. And so I just loved learning all that. Yeah. And like all of these different communities, I think one of the things that was really fascinating was when you were talking to sociologists, and I guess I'm going to quote one of your articles again, quote, I asked every sociologist I interviewed whether communities created around secular activities outside of houses of worship could give the same level of wraparound support that churches, temples, and mosques are able to offer. Nearly across the board, the answer was no. So why do you think, like when it comes to, why would you say that a lot of the spaces created from organized religion are unique when it comes to like the fullest extent to which they can create a sense of belonging and community? Um, I mean, I really think the biggest aspect is that anyone of any age can go. And so there's very few activities when you think about it that your that grandparents, grandchildren, everyone from ages zero to, to 100 can enjoy together at the same time. And that has that recurring aspect. So it's like every Sunday, we know we are all going to be in this place. Um, and having that sort of tradition over time and knowing, oh, well, my grandparents did this and their grandparents did this and their grandparents did this. Um, it's just really hard to create that reaching back into the past um, from scratch. Yeah, And it's and- very hard, even, even, even if you don't want that reaching back into the past aspect of it, it's just hard. I mean, think of most activities you do. Can, can they be consumed or enjoyed by anyone of any age just start there and sometimes the answer is yes but often the answer is no yeah anyone from any age like within any demographic any group Um, yeah yeah um so i guess like one of the things that you said uh towards the end of that article that stuck out to me is something i'm going to quote right now After talking to readers searching for fresh answers to life's eternal questions, I believe that there is potential for new kinds of meaningful, lasting communities to be created in the coming years that have nothing to do with organized religion as we know it. And then, so you you wrote a like a follow up article detailing some of those communities that like nuns are sort of pursuing in lieu of religion. So so could you talk about um, some of those and what your temperature is on them? So I did, I just did a piece last week um, about uh, fitness communities. And so that includes, you know, really organized group fitness like CrossFit or uh, SoulCycle or Orange Theory, which I do. Uh, and then sort of more grassroots group fitness like uh, hiking groups, running groups, you know, rowing groups, all sorts of things that you can do in nature, but with, with other people. Um, and so that certainly was one way. Uh, sports fandom, but just fandoms in general are another way. So just getting together and, and you know, enjoying something in a group, book clubs, things like that. Um, a lot of communities spring up around schools. Um, so, you know, when your kids are, whether that is, you know, PTAs or just, you know, more organic, our closest friends now are people that our older daughter uh, went to preschool with. So 
you know, just, you know, neighborhood bonds, which obviously are, you know, something people have always done. Um, but yeah, those are some of the bigger ways that people are finding community. Yeah, so I guess, um, so I guess there there are two aspects of this that I'd like to pull on. But so I guess the first one would be like, when it comes to all the different communities that people are trying to pursue, are there any like specific things that you would say makes a community like stand out or like work more efficiently than others? That's a great question. Um, I think it really depends. Um, and I think it depends on the kind of person you are. Um, I can only speak for myself, but I'm really put off by communities that have formal memberships. Um, I think it's often because to me, they uh, are rule bound in a way that uh, ultimately makes me not want to be part of <laughs> I'm yeah. not I'm not a joiner. I want my relationships to feel organic and reciprocal and Yeah, not, like 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 there's um, a, like a greater degree of fluidity rather than either you're in or you're out. Exactly. Um but I think there are a lot of people who want that, who want, you know, I mean just look in the United States how many people join fraternities and sororities where you're like literally pledging uh your allegiance to each other. And so um I think that's somewhat of a personality or desire thing um but yeah i don't i don't i don't know that i have a really good answer for that yeah but maybe it's like i guess the the best answer we could give is just that it's it's complicated once again like all of these <laughs> questions yes yeah. i know i wish i could just give you easy clear-cut answers for for any of this but uh and they are just like religion uh deep and complicated and uh, everyone has a sort of different relationship to it yeah, but I'm guess I, I one one thing I'm curious about like is obviously like there is like like a need, or at least I do think that humans sort of need community and belonging. And like when it comes to like the ways in which people try to find a sense of community and belonging, I think what I'm the most curious about is like what happens when people do it unconsciously, like 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 when people don't actively think like like this space for community and belonging that is now absent, I need to like find some sort of replacement for it or like some way to like deal with it. So like, are you familiar with Derek Thompson's concept of workism? Yes. Yeah, I think yes. that like, that is like a perfect sort of encapsulation about like, like the ways in which society like ends up pursuing like some kind of substitute for something they had before without mm -hmm. like previously understanding what it was. So I guess originally I was going to explain it, but since you, you're familiar with it, could you explain it? Um, as my, I mean, it's identification with your job. Um, yeah, basically, like, like have... you see your job, like, that's, like, where you get your sense of fulfillment and purpose, where you used to get it from religion, essentially. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, uh, I think, I don't know that you could gauge the number of people, if that is more prevalent today than it used to be, even among people who were nominally religious. Because in 1950, if it was basically a prerequisite for every person to attend some sort of religious service uh, and to identify as some sort of religion, um, you have no idea if they actually created meaning from that or if that was their primary identification. All we know is that they all went to church. Yeah, maybe. Uh, whether or not maybe they fully believed. Of, yeah, like maybe some of them were only going because like they were they wanted to like stay in good social standing with that community regardless of whether exactly they ex exactly and so we don't I, I i don't disagree that that is 
certainly a way that people identify themselves and think about their sense of self and what and how they belong. But I just with these kinds of squishy concepts, uh, it is really hard to know uh, if people 50 years ago identified with it more or less. Yeah. Or maybe or maybe they did identify with it like to a different extent. But like it wasn't the full picture, maybe like once again, maybe these forces are additive and happening at the same time. Yeah, I mean, because certainly there was so much literature in the mid century about, um, you know, the corporate man going to the office and and searching for for meaning there and self and and the pressure to sort of define yourself as, you know, part of this uh, white collar workaday world. And so certainly that clearly was a force that existed. Um, so it's, again, it's just, again, I, I think it would be so hard to measure and compare over time. Yeah. But then like all, all of like, basically all of these things are hard to measure and compare over time. I know. I, I mean, that's like, um, honestly, that's always my curse is I'm always like, well, <laughs> yeah. sometimes I think I should be a, a, a less nuanced and more strident uh, opinion haver. But uh, I, I'm, I'm always just a, a born skeptic who's like, yeah. well, you know, what are we comparing it to? And, and. I'm just trying to be really careful about ever seeming definitive about things that are impossible to be definitive about. Are you familiar with like Julia Galis idea of the scout mindset? Um, no. Okay. Yeah. But well, I, so like I, it would, it would, I think it would take too long to explain, but essentially, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just give it TLDR. <laughs> um, so like the whole idea about like approaching the world with an open mind like understanding that it's always more complicated than that simple picture that you have in your head, always being open to new ideas that might sound foreign to you. Um, I think that's, I think you do a pretty good job of that. Um, and I think it's very oh. evident in the, the piece. Uh, oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, to, I guess final question is I want to expand on like the whole idea about how, like there are specific groups that have been moving away from religion, but like mm -hmm. tend to have a harder time like building community either for class reasons or because they belong to a specific group. So to quote you, the group of Americans who are moving away from religion in the most significant percentages may have the hardest time building community from scratch because they are often shortest on time and resources. As I noted in part four of this series, every demographic group in the United States is becoming re less religious, but groups that are overrepresented among people with no religion in particular are those without high school diplomas who are single, who don't have children and who earn less than 50,000 a year. So could you elaborate a little bit on how there's increasingly a class divide with regards to religious participation? Yeah, well, I mean, like I like as we discussed earlier, I mean, part of that is is literal cost. Um, there are dues to be paid in many religious groups and there's, you know, constant requests for money. And if you don't have that money to give, you might feel really alienated from attending church or, or defining yourself as part of religion. Um, but I think there's a way in which uh, many of our institutions are just not working well um, for people who don't make a lot of money. And so, you know, if it's not just religion, but it's also participation in, in any kind of community is, is not free or is not sort of, you know, uh, public or communal, uh, it's 
it's going to be a barrier. And if you're working, you know, two jobs, you don't really have time to think about, oh, you know, and how am I going to get together with a big group of people and feel like I belong? Um, so it is a bit of a uh, not just, you know, cash poor, but time poor issue. Yeah. So I guess the question is, like, do you think there's anything there's do you think there's any more things that relig- like in the present day that religious institutions can do to sort of reach out to like members of like lower classes or like people without high school diplomas or people who earn less than 50k a year do you think there's anything that they can do to be more open to those people well i mean i think it's about actually creating events for the community and not just for the closed community of your own church so i mean i talked to it i i I thought at one point that I was going to do uh, a piece of the series where I talked to religious leaders and I ended up for various reasons, not, not going in that direction. Um, But what they talked about was, you know, having church, we don't even, I I talked to a pastor in Florida who said, you know, we don't even need to have a building. We have church services on the beach. Sometimes we, you know, we go out in the community, we join with other faith groups to, you know, have a soup kitchen to do, you know, this, that, and the other thing that is a community event open to all, not costing any money, creating an activity using public or natural resources. Um, so that's something that any group of, you know, group of faith leaders can get together and really devote their time to encouraging. Yeah. All right. Jessica Gross, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. This was amazing. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and and I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you so much again. This was this was an absolute blast. Oh, no, I again, I, I loved doing the series. It was, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of trying to figure out ways to build on it, because I just felt like it was. It was so delightful for me to report, but it would just also I, I think hit a lot of people um, in a really deep way. So I yeah. And Still it's like, thinking like, about ways to keep it going. Yeah, like the more, like, yeah, it's like like the fifth one. You said it was going to be the last one, but then you, you kept going back and like you kept finding new interesting angles to pursue it. Like, the, yeah. I, like yeah, like theoretically, I I think that like you have it in you to just like write another half dozen articles about this. <laughs> yeah, I I probably will over the next year, honestly. Um, but you know, I mean, like one thing that I probably will do in the next month is um. Somebody asked, a couple of people asked me whether it is, like, how how do you become a joiner? Like, there's people who just want, seem to have more of a desire to join big groups and want these, you know, bigger communities and really feel a desire for it. And, like, is that, you know, how we're wired? Is it nurture? Is it, you know, is it culture? Is it all of the above? And so I really, I'm, that is one thing I want to look into in the near term. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, Cause like, I, I've already um, like, I guess as a, as a Christian myself, this, um, this series really like, this was very profound for me and helping me to like fully unpack some of the ideas that I've had in my head. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, have a great rest of your week. All right. Have a nice, yeah, have, have a nice, have a, have a nice rest of your week as well. Yeah.
All right. Take care. Take care.